You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Good morning. Our passage is in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Morning, everyone. That was great. Hardy, I loved that. That was really good. Well, it's good to be with you. There's no better place to be on the Lord's Day than with the Lord's people, singing His praises and delighting in Him. So... I'm glad to be with all of you this morning. Uh, anybody here seen the movie 300? 300? Gosh, classic movie. What a guy film. Let's be honest about that. Um, and I watched that very recently. Uh, if you're not familiar, it's about the Battle of Thermopylae uh, when 300 Spartans fought against the uh, massive invading Persian army. And, uh, you know, amidst all of the action and the classic uh, Zack Snyder sort of like zoom-ins and slow-mo shots, which I think accumulates up to like 20 minutes of the movie is in slow motion, classic Snyder. Uh, As I was watching it, I was really struck this time by the tenacity of these Spartans. They really had this singular mind and focus. They were ready to fight for their king and their country. And what was plainly obvious is that their strength, what what made them succeed, was that they had a commitment to one another. See, there's this battle formation that you have probably heard of, but maybe you aren't familiar with what it is. It's called a phalanx. And a phalanx is basically you've got rows and rows of soldiers with shields in front so that when the invading armies come in, they hit a wall of shields leaving them open to counterattack. And there's a a moment in the movie where King Leonidas says to uh, someone, your father should have taught you how our phalanx works. We fight as a single impenetrable unit. That is the source of our strength. Each Spartan protects the man to his left from thigh to neck with his shield. A single weak spot and the phalanx shatters. Single weak point, and it's all for nothing. But when each man protects the other, that's where they have their strength. That's where they succeed. And friends, the Christian life is the exact same way. So the Christian life, it is a, a communal life. We genuinely need each other if we are going to be successful in our sojourning until our Lord returns. It's impossible for us to, to grow apart from the church. We need to be ministered to by our brothers and sisters, and we need to be ministers to our brothers and sisters. We can't endure in isolation, and so your progress in the faith genuinely and truly depends on the ministry of other Christians in your life. And their progress depends on you doing the very same thing. This is what we might call discipleship. And these sorts of things ought to be the regular pattern of life in our church. So the last two Sundays as we've been in John, uh, we've touched on the theme of of serving one another. 
We've touched on the theme of the blessing of the presence of one another. And we're going to be leaning into this theme once again this morning. In our passage here in Hebrews 10, I want us to see three reasons why we need the presence and ministry of one another. The first is to help us believe the truth. Our hearts are often fickle and often unbelieving, and so we need one another to help us remember the truth. Second, we need each other to help us live the truth. We need to be encouraged to live in obedience to Christ. And then third, we need each other to help us persevere in the truth. We need to take courage and heart from one another. And then uh, after considering these, we're going to conclude by maybe looking at a few practical ideas, nuts and bolts for us to take hold of uh, as we go forward in the coming weeks. So it's my hope that uh, we are encouraged this morning, we're more excited about the life and community of this church, and that we feel more equipped to uh, be ministers to one another. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll jump into the, the text. Father, we're thankful for the privilege to be together. What a wonderful occasion for us to sing your praise and glory. And Father, the truth of that last song that we just sang, all we have is Christ. What a true and glorious reality for us. Help us to cling to Christ. Father, would you be a friend to us this morning? Would you, would you feed us and nourish us from your word this morning? We are hungry to hear from you. So help us to be sustained. Give us a, a love for one another. Give us compassion toward one another. Give us a real fervor and eagerness to see each other grow in the Lord. Be with us this morning, Father. Let us learn from you that we might glorify you with all our lives. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, now, since we are uh, jumping into the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, thought it would be good to maybe give just a little bit of a background so we're all kind of on the same page of where we're at. Uh, this, this letter or this sermon uh, was given to Jewish Christians to encourage them in a time of trial for their Christian faith. And because of this, some were tempted to go back to temple worship, back to the sacrificial system. But the author exhorts them not to do this. And he does this by focusing on the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus. And if you were really to, to summarize the entire book in one small phrase... It is Jesus is better. That's the theme of Hebrews. Jesus is better. And he really labors to, to prove this all throughout. He touches on many different themes. He says that Jesus is the better messenger. He's superior to the angels. He delivers a better message than the angels delivered. He's, he's the better humanity who, who died and conquered death. He's the better Moses. He's the better prophet. He's the better high priest of the better covenant. He's the better Melchizedek. He is the better sacrifice. All these things the author of Hebrews labors to prove and to show and to demonstrate. And if all of that is true, his hearers need to live a certain way. And that's what we begin to see as we come to chapter 10. And in verses 19 and 22, so just prior to what we're going to be looking at this morning, he teaches that because Jesus is better than everything in the Old Covenant, because he is the better atoning sacrifice, we have full assurance of faith. We have full confidence to approach God through Christ's priestly work. 
And we can now stand before God confident that our sins are actually forgiven. They're actually been dealt with. And by virtue of our faith in Christ. And then he moves in these verses we're considering today. And he says that because Jesus is better, because we have assurance, we need to meet regularly together to encourage and to exhort one another. Notice the communal language in these verses, if you want to look at them. In verse 23, it says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. And in verse 25, Let us consider how to stir up one another. Uh, verse, verse 25, Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. See, there is something very important about the community life of the church. It is crucial. We need one another. And so the first thing that we want to consider is how our life together helps us in believing the truth. So we see this in verse 23. Let's read that. It says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So first thing that we are told is that we need to hold fast the confession of our hope. Well, what is the confession of our hope? Let's consider both those elements, hope and confession. What is our hope? Well, Christian hope is not just wishful thinking or mere longing. Christian hope is genuine confidence in God and in his promises. We experience salvation and, and the sanctification that comes with it, and so we, we have a trust in the things that God promises and the things that are yet to come. We, we trust God. We, we look to him. Our hope is in his glorious revelation of himself. Chiefly, that is in Christ. It is the assurance of all of his precious promises being fulfilled. It is the confidence in his faithfulness and his promises in his word and in his work in the world. And central to all of this is the assurance that we have been justified in Christ. That we have been born again. That God is actually sanctifying us and making us to be more like Christ. And that Jesus will return. That he will bring us home. That he will finally and totally do away with sin. And we will be glorified with him. That's Christian hope. Jesus saves. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is coming soon. And our hope isn't just something that's in our minds. It's not just in our hearts. Notice that Christian hope is a confessed hope. This is why we have things like confessions of faith. This is why when we baptize in this church, we have the one being baptized give testimony and give confession of the Lord Jesus. This is why we recite the Nicene Creed. The Christian faith is a declaring faith. And publicly displaying our allegiance to God, it is essential. True faith involves believing in our hearts and confessing with our lips. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Belief and confession. And of course, confession implies that there are others who can hear your confession. Otherwise, it's not 
really a confession at all. You're just kind of talking to yourself. So in other words, the confession means nothing if it isn't associated with, if it isn't tied to the church. So the, the confession of our hope is a, a publicly declared confidence and assurance of the good news of Jesus Christ. And what does the author tell us we need to do together? He says we have to hold fast without wavering. We are to grab hold of Christ and we are to never let him go. In the Greek text, it is, let us hold resolutely to the hope we profess. That word resolutely is a very strong word in the Greek. It means unbending, unyielding, firm, not giving any ground, not fleeing, not resting. We might think of that image of the soldiers who do not back down even though the invading armies are coming against them holding their ground, standing firm, never giving an inch. That is how we are to cling to our hope. We are to cling to it with all that we have because it's all that we have. We need to fight for it. And what this means, friends, is that you are going to be tested. Rest assured, he wouldn't tell you that you need to hold fast, that there weren't going to be no moments where it was going to be difficult for you to hold on to Christ. You will be tested in this life. Hard times are going to come. There will be moments when you need to have grit. You need to be resolved to hold on to your hope. Fear will come. Doubt will come. Depression will come. Frustration will come. Persecution will come. Disappointment will come. Yet, you must be immovable. You must hold fast with everything that you have to Christ. You cannot give way to these things. Jesus said in John 8, 31, you might remember, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. How do you know you're a disciple? You hold fast. You abide in him. Yet you do this not by your strength, but by God's. See, if it was just up to you, to your own grit, this would be a hard thing. This would be a demanding thing. But God helps you. God is with you. And what is the confidence that's provided at the end of verse 23? God is faithful to his promises. Wow. Isn't that wonderful? God is faithful to his promises. It's not about you being faithful to your promises to God, though you do want to do that. But we do not last ultimately because we are so mighty, because we are so powerful. It's because of God. It's because of Christ's hold on you and on me. Recall what Jesus said in John 3, 37. He said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Wonderful. We are kept by God's promises. And because of this, we can hold the confession of our hope without wavering. And, and should those waves of doubt come crashing down upon you and rest assured, they will come. Christ is your anchor in the veil. He tethers you. He holds you. God is faithful. That's our confidence. Rest assured that everything he says 
comes to pass. Proverbs 35, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Verse 24, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. What mercy, what grace, what tender love does our God have for us? Our ability to hold on to Christ depends on God's faithfulness to provide the the strength that we need to endure. And that is a beautiful truth for us to know and to cherish and to cling to. And to him we must hold fast. And that really is the rub, isn't it? It's really where it all counts. Will you hold fast? Will you not hold fast? That's why we need one another. You know, think about some of the hardest things that you have had to go through in your Christian life. A miscarriage. The deep betrayal of a friend. Death of a family member. Cancer. The list could go on. These are just the things that we've had to deal with in our own church. These are moments when we struggle to believe. These are moments when we have a weak grip on our hope. And imagine having gone through these trials without the ministry of your brothers and sisters, without their prayers, without their encouragement, without just being present with you. How weak our hearts often become. How fickle our hearts are. How short-sighted we become in neglecting God's promises. This is why we need one another. We need one another to recall these things. We need one another to remember God's precious promises. We need one another to help us when we struggle with doubt and disbelief. We need one another when we are weak and wounded. If, if we want to hold fast without wavering, it requires that we have meaningful, intimate, deliberate community in this church. We need to have an eye for doing this kind of thing for one another. Friends, it requires sacrifice. There's nothing easy about doing this kind of stuff. You don't want to get in other people's messes because it's messy, it's hard, it's taxing. But we need it, and you know that you need it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts this idea well in his book, Life Together. He says, But God has put the word of Jesus Christ into the mouth of men in order that it may be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of our brother, in the mouth of a man. Therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot keep himself without belying the truth. 
He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. He needs his brother solely because of Jesus Christ. The Christ in his own heart is weaker than the Christ and the word of his brother. His own heart is uncertain. His brother's is sure. Do you see how we need each other? Do you see how your success in holding fast depends on others ministering to you? And do you see how your brothers and sisters need you to do the very same thing for them? Yes, it all ultimately depends on God's grace, but one of God's means of grace is the church. It's one another. So receive God's grace, but also be an agent of God's grace. Our life together depends on us believing the truth. Uh, Next, verse 24, we see that our life together helps us in living out the truth. It says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So we've just considered sort of doctrine and hope and these things, but now we need to consider living these things out, obeying these things. The command in the previous verse was to hold fast without wavering, and the command in this verse is to consider. Well, what are we to consider? Well, the verse says, how to stir up one another to love and good works. And so we have a a very explicit, other-oriented action taking place here. And once again, the nature of this command being given means that we need to be stirred. We need to be provoked to these kinds of things. Do you see that? You don't stir yourself up. Others stir you up. So in other words, if if you want to have a, a greater love for God and for others, you need your brothers and sisters pushing you toward that kind of love. If you want to have greater faithfulness and obedience to God, doing the good works that he laid out for you from the foundation of the earth, you need your brothers and sisters to push you to do these things. And if you need this kind of pushing and prodding and provoking, guess what? So do they. They need the same. So you need each other. You need to love each other in this way. And that word for for stir up, it means to provoke or to irritate. Uh, Doctors used this word to describe the the trembling and shaking that would come when someone had a high fever. It's kind of a violent word. You know, the image maybe is us grabbing someone by the shoulders and actually shaking them into greater love, into greater works. Consider your own life. How often have you needed to be challenged in your obedience to Christ because your heart did not want it? You know, how often have, have you needed to be exhorted to love another person in a sacrificial way? We all know that we need this kind of violent irritation to be reminded to obey Christ. Now, now as we have this translated for us, it would seem that the primary consideration is about how we are to stir up one another. And uh, I'm not going to be that guy and say, they translated it wrong, I'm not saying that. But I think that if we look at the original syntax of the Greek text, we get 
kind of a better picture of what the author has in mind here. Uh, So the most literal rendering syntax of the sentence is, and we should consider one another towards stirring up to love and good works which is like a clunky sentence. So like, I get why it was kind of rearranged there, but do you see how there's maybe a subtle shift in the consideration? It says again, and we should consider one another toward stirring up to love and good works. It's a subtle shift, but I think that it's important that our focus is on the person and not on the work. See, if your focus is primarily on the the action that you're doing, the how, the strategies you might want to implement in order to see their progress, and these things are good. So not saying don't do that. Absolutely do that. But I think if your focus is really primarily on these things, you might find yourself in troubled waters. And I think the really the greatest of these is pride you may begin to think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. You may start to become prayerless for the person you are discipling. You may begin to get really frustrated when they aren't really growing. They're not doing the things that you say that, you know, you should really start doing this, and maybe they don't do it over and over and over again. You'll start to maybe lose your spiritual vitality You'll begin to do things by your own strength and wisdom. And you may be tempted to think that it is through your gifts, your prowess, your wisdom, that this brother or sister is really progressing in the faith. And even worse, your friend might begin to think the very same thing. See, we need to be reminded of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. See, what we need to consider is the other person. It's not the strategies. If you want to know how you disciple others, it begins right there. Consider them. Consider them. And Paul says in Philippians 2, 3 and 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So consider your brother. What are his weaknesses? How has the Lord been working in his life? What is praiseworthy in him? What are his needs? Where does he need the conviction of the Holy Spirit? How can you thank God for him? See, these things will really change your attitude and your love toward this person. And it promotes humility and it looks ultimately to God, to do what only God can do, which is bring about new life in that brother or sister. And it is out of this loving concern and consideration that comes these love-fueled strategies. Now, as you consider him, what do you hope to accomplish? Well, 
to stir him up to greater love, faithfulness, and obedience to God. And this is God's call on us to consider one another, to, to, to look at one another, to think about one another, to focus on one another, to, to study one another. Like, really think about that, to study that brother or sister so that you can bear the word of Christ to him or her and give life, give encouragement. That's biblical community. We should be occupied with thoughts about one another. You know, we should be, in a sense, consumed with these thoughts for one another. You know, we should be excited to think of, of ways to encourage each other in these things. We should seriously reflect on one another's temptations and trials and, and weaknesses and seek to be a benefit and a blessing. We should always be asking ourselves, even maybe when we get up in the morning, we're praying for others, what can I do today so that he will be stirred up to love and good works? Well, finally, if we look to verse 25, we see that our life together helps us to persevere in the truth. And so believe the truth, live out the truth, persevere in the truth. Verse 25 says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So unsurprisingly, in order to do all these things, what do we have to do? We have to meet together. We have to meet together. Now, uh, we read this verse, and most of us likely think first and foremost about what we're doing right here this morning, gathering together as a church on the Lord's day uh, to learn from him, to, to pray, to sing, to encourage one another, and this is true. That is absolutely an implication of this passage and this verse. Um, we need to be a people who so value God, who so value his church, that we never neglect to meet together on the Lord's day. In fact, to, to regularly not do that is sin. And so Christians need to be gathering on the Lord's day. Forsaking this meeting means forsaking God. It's to defy him. You know, and, and you may think of, maybe in your own life, I don't know if that's a struggle for you, but you might think that, oh, I can get good preaching online, I can listen to some good podcasts, um, and that's sufficient. Or maybe you kind of have no desire really um, at all. You have other things going on, you're too busy, there's a, a football game going on, I've got a ticket to go to a football game, so that's a little more important. Um, but these excuses really reveal the reality of a disobedient heart. Instead of searching for an excuse, we should do everything that we can to meet together. Not only because we need to be fed by the preaching of the Word of God, but also because it's a part of the faith to stir up one another, even in this larger gathering. But I would also suggest that the application of this verse is broader than only the Sunday gathering. Christians are to be in the habit of meeting regularly with other Christians to do spiritual good to one another. This is why we have small groups in this church. And this is why we require smaller participation for our members. Now, when we neglect to assemble with other Christians, we're cutting ourselves off from the very means of grace that God has for us to, to, to feed us, to assure us, and to protect us. 
You know, in our small groups, we, we study and apply the Sunday passage together. We, we break bread together and have fellowship. We bear one another's burdens. We celebrate one another's joys. So small group in this church is an indispensable gift of grace. We all need it for our progress in the faith. And so if you are not in a small group, friend, you're harming yourself. You are. If you want to grow in Christ, you need this kind of deliberate community. It's not going to happen apart from it. But I would also take it a step further. So it's not even just about the Sunday gathering. It's not even just about the small groups. It's also about the regular life-on-life relationships that you have with people. In other words, personal discipleship. You need to be meeting with other Christians throughout your week for personal, intimate, and deliberate encouragement. You need to seek these out. You need to pursue these things. And when someone pursues you in these things, be receptive to that. Be receptive to it. You know, this is where deep confession takes place. This is where late-night emergencies are, are handled. This is where the most pointed and direct exhortation happens. This is where you will be most deeply and intimately known and know someone else. We need each other to be a part of our regular life rhythms. That's how we really come to observe each other. That's how we come to know each other. You see how he loves or neglects his neighbors. You see how maybe she manages or mismanages her household. You see how he spends his time wisely or foolishly. See, these are things that you're not going to see on a Sunday morning. These are things you're probably not even going to see on a Wednesday or Thursday night in our small groups. These kinds of things happen as we live life on life together. And so we need all three of these things if we are going to be successful in this Christian life. And notice that it needs to be a habit. There were those who were in the habit of not doing this. And he's saying, don't make that your habit. Your habit is to gather with Christ's people. And the author of Hebrews concludes this exhortation with Christ's return in focus. He says that we need to meet together for mutual encouragement all the more as you see the day drawing near. He says that meeting together is all the more important because Jesus is returning. Well, why? Why would that be the case? Well, eternal life hangs in the balance, friends. Earlier in Hebrews 3, this is the passage we read together, the author writes, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if, indeed, we hold our original confidence to the end. Do you see how this is similar? Do you see how this is relevant? He says that to, we prove to be true Christians when we endure to the end, and that this endurance comes through the exhortation of other Christians. Christians. 
we genuinely need each other to persevere in the faith. God uses these deliberate relationships to help preserve us. In Luke 18, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Um, So, I just want to say this with pastoral love. Um, If your heart is not for these things, if you're a Christian, and, and maybe you come on Sundays, and that's good, and I want you here, but you have no heart to be with God's people. There's no love. There's nothing driving you to, to know other Christians, to do spiritual good for them. There's no drive for you to be fed and encouraged and challenged. I don't know what you mean by calling yourself a Christian. Being a part of the body of Christ means loving the body of Christ. It is a supernatural work. It is something that that cannot be contrived. But God loves his people. And the love of God dwells in his people. And if God loves his people and his love dwells in you, then guess what, friend? You love others. And that's why he brings this idea of judgment in at the end. You prove yourself to be true when you do these things because it preserves you. I promise you, friend, I promise you that for as long as you do not engage in meaningful Christian relationships, your Christianity is going to be stunted at best or it's going to be worthless at the day. I know that's a hard thing. I don't really like saying that, but it's true. And someone here might need to hear that. And so I would beg you, I would implore you, take this seriously. If you notice in your own heart that there is no affection for God's people, friend, you need to get that right with God. You need to confess that. You need to sort that out this afternoon. Your spiritual vitality depends on this. Do not be fooled. So please, please examine yourself. Look and ask God to reveal these things to you that you might repent of them. And so then you can be nourished and encouraged and you yourself can be an agent of God's grace in others' lives in this church. And friend, there is nothing better than being used as the means of God's grace in someone else's life. There's nothing quite like it. So why do we need other Christians? Well, we can't have full confidence and assurance apart from one another. We don't endure in isolation. We all desperately need this body of believers for encouragement. You need continual reminders of our hope from other saints. You need to be stirred up to love and good works. And have you ever considered how your own ministry and life in this church is the means that God would use to preserve someone unto the day of glory? Remarkable, isn't it? The Lord intends to use you for these things, so so lean into it. 
and make it your habit to meet regularly with other Christians. Their endurance depends on it. Your endurance depends on it. Do these things. Uh, So as we conclude, uh, I want us to consider just a few practical things for us so that we can really do these things and, and take hold of them. You know, how can we help each other to actually believe and live and persevere in the truth? I want to give a a few things. So two things that are going to be for your own soul that you've got to do, and then three things that you can do for other people. So the first most important thing, we've said actually both these are going to be um, obvious and things that we talk about most weeks. Guess what? It's coming again. First, be a student of the Word. You can't grow and you can't help others if you're not a student of the Word. Scripture is the means that God uses to sustain and nourish us. You know, 1 Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the words so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. Deuteronomy 8.3, and it says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, we might think of Psalm chapter 1. Right? The blessed man. The blessed man is not listening to the counsel of the wicked nor standing in the way of sinner. He's not standing in the seat of scoffers. What is he doing? He's delighting in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. And then if you continue on, what is he? He's a tree firmly rooted by streams of water. His leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Friends, if we want to prosper, if we want spiritual fruit, we need to be in the Word. And so we need to make that an ambition. You need to be a student of the Word. You need to know God. You need to know theology. You need to know the truth. And so, let me give you a few ways that you can do this. Uh, So, there's maybe some of us here who are struggling to, to read the Bible consistently. I would consider using a Bible reading plan. Sounds maybe boring, but sometimes we need these things to help us along. Uh, you might consider using D.A. Carson's two-volume set that's called For the Love of God. Uh, you'll go through the entire Bible, and he has meditations for all the readings that can help you get into prayer and observation. Uh, you might consider the, the five-day Bible reading program. Um, this takes you to the Bible in a year and gives you two off days or grace days should you uh, neglect to do your Bible reading, which can make getting into this habit maybe a little less intimidating. Because I know with Bible reading plans in my own life, when it's like I miss a day or two and now it kind of all sort of snowballs, and you're like, eh, I'm going to give up on that, right? And it's just me. It's just... Thank you. Thank you, brother. Appreciate that. I appreciate that. Yes. And so this five-day program can be helpful for that, give you courage. Uh, if you want to do more, more study and you like podcasts, I would highly recommend the podcast called Bible Talk. Excellent podcast. Uh, the hosts study and walk through books of the Bible, and the content is absolutely brilliant. Uh, they began in Genesis, and they're currently in 1 Samuel. Um, Jim Hamilton is one of the hosts, and I think he is one of the uh, greatest biblical scholars of our time. So I would encourage you to just sit down and 
have a Bible open, listen to that podcast, see the observations that they are making. Uh, maybe you're more visual. Maybe you like watching videos. So go on YouTube, search Bible Thinker. Bible Thinker. Uh, the host, Mike Winger, is a pastor, and he is a wonderful Bible teacher. And he tackles all sorts of issues and goes through them very thoroughly and biblically. And so it would be very worth your time uh, to do that. Uh, if you want something a little more intense, you could take free online seminary courses. Why not? Why not do that? Uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, one of our seminaries, has a, an institution called For the Church Institute. These are seminary classes, freely available for anyone to take. Classes in church history, in theology, in New Testament, in Old Testament. Consider doing these things. And the point is that there's a lot of options out there for you. There's more than what I've given here. I would love to talk to any one of you afterward about some other options you could have, but the point is just take something and, and run with it. Start doing something. Uh, the second thing that you need to be doing for your own soul is you need to be praying. You've got to be praying. And without prayer, all the things that you study are going to increase your knowledge, but they're not going to increase your love. Paul says in Colossians 4.2, he says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And what's interesting is that this comes after he, he urges us to live in a manner consistent with our union with Christ. You know, because we've been raised with Christ, we are to seek the things that are above and uh, warring against what is earthly and sinful. We're to put on the virtues of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and he says that the word of Christ is to dwell in us richly. And then he concludes with that. You know, how are we to be faithful in doing this? We're to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. So prayer expresses our complete dependence on God for help and strength. It's how we wrestle with the maybe hard things that we read and deal with. It helps us to have these things take root in our hearts. So, so be a man and a woman of prayer. And as your own soul is nourished through the word and prayer, as you increase in your knowledge of the truth, go and do spiritual good to others. So f uh, three encouragements for us on that. First, be word-centered. Shocker, right? You need to be word-centered in your own life. So the first thing you have to be doing is you need to be word-centered as you're interacting with other Christians. You know, there's a danger in limiting these kinds of relationships to accountability only. Sort of only talk about our own struggles, um, which is good. I mean, I'm not saying don't do those things. You do need to do those things. Or there's a temptation to not really get into anything too serious. Just kind of like, we're two friends. We're both Christians. Maybe we'll pray, but we don't really get into anything super deep or meaningful. You always need to bring everything back to the Word of God. You know, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give an account. Let God use his word to do his work. So come together and study the Bible. You know, get a, get a good commentary. You know, if that intimidates you, get a good commentary and use that together. 
There's a really easy and approachable commentary series called the uh, Exalting Christ, wait, Christ-Centered Exposition, is that right, Meredith? The Christ-Centered Exposition series. They've got a ton of different um, books on that covering different books, and they're easy. And they've got, even have discussion questions at the end of the chapters. And so that is a really good resource for you because we consider using a commentary as you would read the Bible together. Uh, all those resources I gave you, consider doing those things with somebody and discussing them. Read good Christian books and discuss them together. Uh, memorize the Bible together. Hold one another accountable to that. And of course, we we'll to be praying together. There's a few things that you could be doing. Second, it's really important that you be honest in these relationships. Solomon writes in Proverbs 24, 26, whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. And Solomon considered an honest answer to be just as wonderful as a kiss. Honest answers are crucial. Otherwise, your relationships are kind of shallow. They're vapid. They're not really meaningful. And you can really only care for each other to the extent that each other are willing to be transparent with your life. So you need to be honest. It means you've got to confess sin, which is intimidating and scary, but you need it for your own soul. You need to confess, and that brother or sister then has the opportunity to give the word of Christ to you, to remind you of the gospel, to be praying for you. It means talking through your own life struggles. You've got a big decision that's coming up. You do yourself no favors by keeping that in your own mind. Talk to brothers and sisters. Get wisdom. It means confronting the other person when necessary. That can be hard, but true friends confront the sin that is in each other. That's a demonstration of love. Psalm 141.5 says, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let, me, let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let me not refuse it. Uh, Proverbs 27. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It can be uncomfortable to do that. And you might feel like it's not your place to do it, but it might be that God intends to use you to serve that brother or sister. So, so be honest. And also, as you're doing that, be gracious. And be gracious and understand where that brother or sister is at in their own faith. In Proverbs 15, one says, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Just be wise as you do that. And then third, be available and generous with your time. Absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. And Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so you should strive to be present and available to those you disciple in order that you might do good to them. And real transformative growth involves consistent commitment. Meeting infrequently is uh, going to be a problem. It's not going to be helpful. It's going to deflate any sort of momentum that you have. So you want to meet consistently with people. So you want to put it on your calendar. Make it a point that you come to this thing. Make it a priority. Uh, be consistent that also, not only for the one who's kind of like maybe taking lead and doing the discipling, but if you are the one being discipled, you need also to be consistent. You need also to, to see through these things to the end. 
It also means you need to be available to the impromptu needs of others. It's good to have a schedule. It's great. Value that. Life isn't so neat and tidy as to fit into your schedule. And so you need to be available to do spiritual good when it's going to sacrifice your time that you hadn't planned. You wanted to do something else with your time. But this sister is going through something. And so then I'm going to give up what I want to do to do that. I'm going to be a minister to that brother or sister. And it means that taking a late night phone call, something happens. You get a phone call at midnight. You've been asleep. What do you do? It's a person you've been meeting with. Brand, you take the phone call. It means following up with that brother or sister, taking the time to be with him. Never doubt the power of the ministry of presence. And I promise you, friend, I promise you this, that you can tell. That person's going to tell if you neglect time with them. It's obvious when someone actually doesn't care about you because they don't give you the time of day. (laughs) Right? And so be a person who's generous with their time so that you can be a blessing to them. If this is your practice, I promise you, your relationships are going to be meaningful. They're going to matter. So I hope those are helpful for you, some things that maybe you can consider and you begin to implement. And I hope that we can see just how important the communal life of this church is. How important it is for us to have meaningful relationships with one another. We need each other. We need this kind of mutual discipleship. So let's consider each other. Let's pray for each other. Let's begin to take even just one step this morning toward these things. Let's pray that God would sharpen us and sustain us as we do this. Let's go to Lord in prayer now. Father, we are thankful just for the treasure of your word. We're thankful that you speak to us by it and that we are challenged by it, that we are encouraged by it, that we are fed by it, that we are nourished by it. And so we're thankful for all that you are doing this morning through your word. We ask that it would increase. Would you help us to be a people who have a great love for one another, who have a real drive to to meet together, who have a passion to see one another's joy in Christ increase. Help us to be sacrificial in all these things. Would you give us the strength we need to do it because it is a hard work that you have for us, Father. But may we always know that your grace is sufficient for us. Would you sustain us as we do these things? And Father, as we do these things, would you cause such spiritual growth among us. Would you cause the love that exists in this church to go beyond these walls, but into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into our county, that others would come to know you in a saving way and be joined to this fellowship or fellowships like this and experience this kind of communal love for one another. So help us, Father, we beg, we we need your mercy in these things. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.